Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm delighted and honored to welcome each of you to today's prevailing wage determinations and recruitment, our topic. I'm also honored to introduce to you two of my brilliant, experienced, sharp colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Korzad Mehta and James McLaughlin, who's more fondly known as Jim McLaughlin here. Uh, so in today's con teleconference, we will discuss, as I said, prevailing wage determinations, or PWDs as we call it, because it is the first stage, uh, it is one of the first steps in the first stage of the green card process, which is the PERM process. The, in the PERM process, employers, as you know, are required to pay the employees a certain prevailing wage that must, and the Department of Labor has to bless that, and that wage must either meet or exceeding the prevailing wage for the sponsored position in that geographic jurisdiction and as determined by the U.S. Department of Labor or DOL. So our attorneys will go over some of the fundamental and not so fundamental, a little more sophisticated, complex issues of prevailing wage determinations and the trends that are going on with prevailing wages and hopefully provide you with guidance on how you can present a case or how you can overcome issues when you're seeking and trying to obtain a valid, hopefully a workable prevailing wage determination for you as the employer in the green card processing. With that, I'm going to ask Korzad to go ahead and describe and explain a little bit about what is a prevailing wage determination and explain a little bit about the Form 9141, which is used in preparing the PERM form. Thanks, Sheila, and thanks for having us here today. Um, the prevailing wage determination, which is filed with the Department of Labor on Form 9141, is typically the first affirmative step that an employer takes uh, when they are commencing the process to permanently sponsor a foreign national employee for permanent immigration to the United States. Uh, it essentially comprises and summarizes the job title, the job um, requirements, any special skills or supervisory duties, and presents them to the Department of Labor so that the Department of Labor can determine, like you said, the prevailing wage for that occupation in that area of intended employment. And what is the prevailing wage? Essentially, the prevailing wage is the minimum wage that an employer must offer to the to anybody who they intend to employ in that occupation, per the with those uh, requirements and education experience requirements as well as special skills in that area of in that area of intended employment. Um, the wage, although it does not have to be paid. Uh, uh, until the individual gets the green card in their hand, the employer has to be able to offer it. And I mean, though that goes beyond the scope of this teleconference, obviously the employer will at the I-140 stage have to show the ability to pay that wage from the filing of the labor certification. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We're still talking about the Form 9141. The Department of Labor determines the wage on the basis of some data, um, most commonly the um, OES survey, 
uh, or the um, or if there's a collective bargaining agreement that governs the employment of the uh, individuals employed by this company, then they determine the wage based on that. Uh, or an alternative wage survey that an employer may have submitted with the Form 9141 to justify what the prevailing wage should be. Or if the employer is a nonprofit entity or institution of higher education, rather, uh, the um, American Com Competitiveness and the Workforce Information Act, ACWIA, survey. The Form 9141, this prevailing wage determination, basically comprises the foundation stone or keystone for the entire labor certification and permanent immigration based on employment sponsorship going forward. Um, it, and that is why it is essential that this form be completed accurately and with detail to accurately reflect the sponsored position, its title, the job duties, minimum requirements, supervision, all that essential information so that the Department of Labor can accurately judge what the occupation code is for the offered employment and concomitantly assign the appropriate wage level. And we'll be discussing that today. Um, it is essential, therefore, that the prevailing wage form, the ETA 9141, act as a mirror, uh, and uh, or rather, it mirror what we intend to be the contents of the form 9089, which is the labor certification form. Uh, generally, that means that the duties and information that we provide is at a little more of an enhanced or higher level for the labor certification process. OK, thanks, Korzad. Um, now, we often say that with there's a big difference in how we look at the prevailing wage for a green card case and a prevailing wage for an H-1 case. Similarly, the offered position, how do we sort of interact? How the H-1B, if an employer right now has an employee on an H-1B status and those job duties, how should that interplay with the prevailing wage and the 9089 and the 19, you know, 9141, all of those? How, what is the interplay between the H-1 job and the green card job and what should an employer watch for? That's a good question, Sheila. Um, the essentially the H one and the prevailing wage determination should follow the same methodology when you're factoring in what the appropriate job code is and what the appropriate wage level is. The difference here is in the H-1B context, an employer generally has the freedom to determine what they think is best. Um, and generally speaking, may not be as tight on what the true minimum requirements are. It's much more broad. In the PERM process, where you have to narrow down what's the true minimum requirement, you're talking about uh, education, experience, potential specific certifications or technologies, if there's supervisory duties. All this comes into play um, in determining the de Department of Labor looks at to determine what the actual wage level is. So we're talking about this here, even though it's a prevailing wage determination teleconference, because it, it matters in looking at what is the PERM. The PERM is essentially a future job for when the individual gets their green card. They don't technically have to be in that position until they get that green card. So you have flexibility. You, as an employer, you could either sponsor them in the specific H-1B position they're in now, if that's what they're doing, or a future position you expect them to be in potentially many years down the road when they get their green card. Now, if because of this, you have to keep in mind that if it is the same as the H-1B position, they need to mirror. The PERM's going to be have more detail, 
But when you're looking at the job code, when you're looking at the wage level, they need to be consistent. So it's very important when, particularly for, say you have uh, Indian employees you're going through the labor certification process for, there's going to be potentially many years before they get their green card. And in an H-1B as an employer, you may have hired them on initially as an entry level, and the wage level is one or a wage level two. But for Indian nationals, EB-2 versus EB-3 is very important. So if you if you're going to be sponsoring them in EB-2, there's a really good chance that it's going to be different than the H. And so you have to keep that in mind. Um, and okay. you know, just going forward, keep in mind that most level one wages um, for professional positions, it's doubtful they're going to be considered an EB-2. So be mindful of this at the beginning, because as Korzad said, this is the keystone for the entire case. Okay, thanks, Jim. So next we'll tr- touch upon the topic of uh, the subtopic of pre- the factors for prevailing wage. So what is take what is taken into account uh, in determining a prevailing wage? What are the factors that are considered? So first we have based on a comparison of the job title and the job duties of the sponsored position, and you compare it against the ONET occupations. And it's important to note that not all all ONET occupations have the OES wage data. And of course, it's not an exact science. So it's a discretionary determination because as an employer, as the attorneys, we can suggest, but ultimately the Department of Labor makes the final decision. And again, this is pretty different uh, to sort of follow up on what Jim just said from the H-1B where the employer gets to select the particular ONET occupation for the H-1B LCA, which has greater flexibility. And so we see complications that can arise where the Department of Labor may select a different job classification for PERM than the one that the employer may have selected for the H-1B petition. You can use the job description section to explain why you believe a specific category is more accurate. And generally, you use this when uh, the lead position, but not, for example, a managerial or when the other category is more accurate. I think I'm I'm explaining things a little, and I want to have Korzad maybe jump in and explain about the catch-all all other classifications. You know, so, Sheila, exa- exactly what you're saying. I mean, you know, the Department of Labor looks at the job description, job title, and minimum requirements, and then looks at their um, Occupational Outlook Handbook and their ONET um, Job and Wage Library and the OES survey, most commonly, to determine what the best fit occupational classification is and what the wage level will be. And like I said, we'll talk about the wage level in a few minutes. Um, oftentimes, and this is especially true in the case of emerging or new um, occupational classifications, or also sometimes in um, specific occupations that are not listed, the Department of Labor um, kind of gets into a situation where they would rather they, they where they may pick the wrong job title, or they may pick one which they feel bears a reasonable relation to what the job is, but it's not an exact fit. The OES and the online wage library and the, you know, ONET, as it's called in the Department of Labor, they do have categories which are called catch-all categories. Those categories typically start with 0.99, or sorry, end with 0.99 rather. And they are more general, but within 
them, they sometimes include these new or emerging uh, job uh, job jobs or occupations. Something like, for example, information technology project manager. Uh, traditionally, the Department of Labor has been resistant in assigning those particular job classifications to jobs that otherwise would get them, but for the fact that they're not explicitly stated in the um, ONET as their own individual entry. Uh, recently, and I, by recently I mean within the last two, three years, uh, a Board of Alien Labor Certifications appeal case called In Re Matter of Meltwater U.S. News 1, uh, as well as other guidance and pronouncements from the Department of Labor, have opened the door to the Department of Labor assigning or per permitting these particular classifications to be used in wage determinations. But in our experience, what we've observed is that if you want one of those classifications, you, you need to advocate for it. Um, and uh, what we oftentimes have to do is supplement the request, uh, the prevailing wage request, with documentation, information, and material to justify uh, why the Department of Labor can select that particular job classification in the right. all-other category. Exactly, Corazon. And actually, since that case that you mentioned, the one category we have seen the Department of Labor come back on that's in the all-others is exactly that category, right. the uh, IT project manager. Um, that is one where the Department of Labor is... Uh, more willing to allow that all other at this point in time. We've also observed which that Which is a great QA. compromise, too. Yeah, no, it's good. And, and, and the software quality assurance yeah, testers, right. the validation engineers. Now, when you mentioned, Corzell, the minute ago, something about the, if you want to advocate as the employer, you're saying the employer would want to advocate because they can get a better prevailing wage, which hopefully is much lower than what the Department of Labor comes back what you're describing is the practical effect of it. Um, what I what I uh, characterize it as is that the, sometimes and oftentimes the data that supports the all other categories is more in line with the market uh, and uh, and the market for wages in that particular area of intended employment. So yes, oftentimes it it does perhaps because it better reflects the job duties results in a more accurate wage that's a, that can be assigned to that particular job in that particular area of intended employment often in all of the category actually may be a compromise between two different occupations. So, um, you know, sometimes you get, the Department of Labor will look at a, uh, a job description and say, there's a combination of occupations here. Um, and what the Department of Labor is going to do is take a look at the two of them and automatically assign whatever is the higher wage level, even though that may not always be the most accurate for mm -hmm. the job. Mm -hmm. So when you're filing the prevailing wage determination, in that section where you detail the job description itself and the duties of the individual. Um, in that, you can also put in an argument as to this is the most appropriate code and here is why. Okay. Now, you might have already answered this, but one of yeah. the questions I did want to ask is, what if there is a combination of occupations that could work and how does that sort of interplay with what we've been discussing. Right, yeah, no, it, it's, it's exactly right. When there is a combination of occupations, um, the Department of Labor is going to automatically default to whatever the higher wage level is. Um, uh, they're, the, essentially, uh, the reason is they don't want to depress U.S. Wor working wages, and so that's a justification for that, even though it may not always be most appropriate, so look for the all other. But there is one thing to keep in mind, that if it is a combination of occupations, which does happen, um, we're all multitasking in this world, um, you have to keep in mind that if a if it's been determined as a combination of occupations, it's going to be listed on your prevailing wage determination 
And on the 9089, as Corzad said earlier, uh, the 9141 needs to mirror the PERM application, the ETA 9089. There's a question on there, is this a combination of occupation? Right. Um, and you'll want to talk to your attorney about, you know, what's the correct answer there based upon this prevailing wage. Okay. And what about roving employees? Because that's so common, consulting companies and other jobs where employees need to move. There's the client location versus the headquarters rule. What about telecommuting? Right. If there's any travel at all, telecommuting, it needs to be listed on the, on the uh, 9141. Um, it's and, gonna, on similar, and similarly on the 9089. Exactly. And it's going to be in recruitment. Um, generally speaking, if you have rove, it depends on, it's a fact circumstance question. Uh, so it may be a little different depending on whatever the circumstances are as to how you articulate what the travel is. But keep in mind, it does need to be listed. Um, the headquarters rule basically says when you don't know where an individual is going to be in the future because it is a future position and they're not going to be directly working at your office from you know, the time they're hired to the time they retire, then you need to add in language uh, that says essentially you don't know where it's going to be. Um, and so you use the headquarters as your location for recruitment and your prevailing wage determination. Okay. Um, and similarly with telecommuting, if you're going to allow it, it depends if it's requirement or if it's a benefit. And that language needs to be articulated appropriately as well. Wonderful. So next we'll go to wage levels. I know this is becoming a really, really hot topic, by the way, for H-1Bs uh, with wage level one RFEs becoming the norm. And by the way, for those, everybody on the conference call, the Murthy Law Firm is planning to have a separate conference call just on H-1B level one RFEs and solutions, suggestions, ideas, and strategies, how to try to obtain approvals on those RFEs. But right now we're discussing wage levels with respect to prevailing wages, with respect to PERMs for green card cases. So, Korsad, would you give a little bit of explanation and background on that? Sure, Sheila. And I mean, like Jim said, I want to say it from the outset, uh, you know, determining the wage level and a lot of these principles that we're talking about today apply an equal force when we're doing H-1B um, jobs. Though, yes, of course, we have the flexibility to select the job classification uh, and and um, and f move forward with the petition based on that. Uh, calculation of the wage level is common to both, uh, to both the non-immigrant process as well as the immigrant process. Uh, in 2009, the Department of Labor issued wage guidance for how adjudicators are supposed to determine the wage level. So the question becomes, what is a wage level? Well, a wage level is basically the manner in which the Department of Labor will express the minimum wage for that particular job in that particular area of intended employment based on its education, experience, uh, requirements, special skills, or supervisory duties. There are four different wage levels. Wage level one is for entry level um, individuals in a professional occupation, and level four is for high-level, uh, advanced, uh, competent f uh, people. Um, the, what the Department of Labor does is they compare the, pr the factors of education, experience requirements, special skills, and supervisory duties set by the employer for that particular job classification against what their, their database, the ONET, considers to be normal for that job for that job classification. Um, in job zones two to five, which are the vast majority of the um, occupations that most employers do labor certifications for in the United States, uh, the calculation is done as follows. Every proffer job starts off at a level one. 
And a point is added for every factor above the normal education, experience, special skill, or supervisory duty requirements for that particular occupation. So, for example, if the Department of Labor's ONET says that a particular position is um, has as a minimum requirement a bachelor's degree, but the employer requires a master's degree for that position, then an additional point will be added, and that would be a level two. If the experience for that same position is above what the employer would consider normal, or what the ONET would consider normal in that uh, a, a class in that job classification in the area of intended employment, they would add another point, level three. Um, and uh, if, for example, there are supervisory duties uh, that are required of this occupation, and the normal uh, for that occupation in the area of intended employment does not require supervisory duties, you can still ask for them, but they're going to add another point. Um, that's just a very, very rough kind of explanation as to how they determine how many points there are. And though the minimum number of points you can accumulate doesn't necessarily have to be four, any points above four is going to result in the Department of Labor assigning a level four wage. Wow. So to kind of summarize what Korzad just said, and it's kind of in a d- detail, we talk about the higher wage triggers. We have the education and experience that is greater than the job zone or the ETC code. You have, if you have special skills, certifications, or licenses, if the employee rather has that. Three, if there are travel requirements, if you have travel requirements, they say, hey, you're required to travel. So that's uh, like a little bit of a nuisance factor. And a lot of the consulting positions, that's obviously for roving employees. Uh, headquarters rule, what Jim just explained, that's a travel requirement. Four, if you have supervisory duties, especially if they're not normally required for the occupation as defined by ONET. So obviously, if you're a supervisor, that's one more point that you would be you know, required to pay at a higher wage. And uh, similarly, if it's a managerial position and you're managing your peers as opposed to managing your subordinates, that's another factor that's going to trigger a higher wage, uh, resulting in a higher wage uh, finding. Or if there's unusual job duties, uh, we talked about combination, but we're talking even more something weird, for example, outdated technology like COBOL, that's actually considered a reason to not reduce the wage, but increase it because it's so unusual. So with that, would uh, you be able, because till now we've been talking about sort of Department of Labor prevailing wages from them. What about what we call AWS or alternate wage surveys? How does that work, Jim? Yeah, employers don't have to use the OES, the Department of Labor, um, wage salary information. Um, They can uh, obtain an independent um, alternative wage survey, um, either through a survey group or if they've conducted their own. Um, But one thing that you should keep in mind that if they are obtaining that or want to use their own, it really has to meet very specific factors. And you should also be aware that Generally speaking, the Department of Labor is reluctant to allow alternative wage surveys. It's probably been two or three years now at least that we've really seen um, the Department of Labor very specific about what wage surveys they'll accept. And if they don't, they're just automatically going to uh, issue the wage, prevailing wage determination based upon their OES, their own salary information. But, you know, key factors uh, to keep in mind really are include data collection, data publication time frame, area of intended employment and uh, job description information, uh, which I think Corzai could probably talk about in yeah, very absolutely. good detail. Absolutely. I mean, the 
alternative waste survey that you use has to meet specific requirements. With respect to data collection timeframe, the data that the um, survey is based on has to be collected within 24 months of publication, or if it's or if the survey is actually one that's been conducted by the employer themselves who's submitting the uh, labor uh, the um, prevailing wage request, then the data would have have to been collected within 24 months of the submission of the prevailing wage request. Uh, additionally, the survey should have been published within 24 months of submitting the prevailing wage request, and it has to be the most current um, edition. So, for example, uh, you know, some survey companies, uh, I believe Towers Watson, uh, they publish surveys every year. You can't skip this year and go to last year because it's more favorable for you. They've got a new edition. So that's the one that would have to be used. Right. They also have to use, uh, generally speaking, looking at your metropolitan statistical area as the area of intended employment where they gather the data. You may be able to broaden it out um, to the to a CSA area, but the larger you get, the greater the border, the less likely that the Department of Labor is going to accept that alternative wage service. So you want to be very careful there. And similarly with the job description, job requirements, we want to show that it's consistent with what's being offered on the 1989. And so we need to demonstrate that the data represents workers who are similarly employed. Uh, and similarly employed basically means requiring similar levels of skills. And we need to look to see if the survey has information about the education training requirements. Again, it's helpful, but not required, but it's important to double check that. And you also need to look for an overlap in duties, skills, tools, certifications, and technologies. Uh, Jim, you're dying to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to make sure uh, people realize that. In practice, uh, at the Murthy Law Firm, when we've uh, submitted alternative wage surveys or when we hear talking to our colleagues in the field, this is actually the area that we see the most trouble with the Department of Labor. Particularly if you purchase a wage survey, a lot of the times when it's not accepted, the reason is they don't feel that the job duties on your 9141 sufficiently mirror the job duties that are listed on the wage survey. Hmm. Very so. So again, it's like surgery: a little to the <laughs> yeah. left and a little to the right. You know what? I did a fantastic operation, but the patient died because I didn't do it right. And it's a little bit like that with PERM and labor certification, where everything has to match and mirror in a very technically, legally, and practically, uh, in practical ways to, to make sense. Because the whole idea of the Department of Labor is to protect the wages and working conditions of the U.S. labor market. And the whole idea of the PERM, which we didn't sort of, we kind of dance around it, but we didn't really spell it out, is really to protect the wages and working conditions of U.S. workers. And the whole idea of prevailing wages is to make sure that the employers are not tempted to underpay foreign workers who have less negotiating power and clout to demand wages or move about freely from employer to employer. No, just, uh, you know, once again, tying back to the um, requirements of the survey. It's important that, that survey have a cross-industry uh, representation. That means the data has to be collected from employers across industries, not just, let's say, a survey that is completely for the financial industry or a survey that's completely for the computer um, software services industry. Is that because they think that some industries may pay higher or lower and they want to cross-section? So Correct. It's to kind of mm -hmm. get a... Um, get an average weighted average across industries for that particular occupation so it more 
accurately drills to what the uh, real actual wage is for the, the occupation. So if you have an accountant in your company or an accounting person or a bookkeeper, you want to make sure that it's not just in the software industry. You would mm-hmm. look across multiple industries. But Scorzat, what if the, an occupation uh, is purely in one industry, for example, and a hospitalist? No, that is uh, obviously that makes sense. You know, we're not going to have a hospitalist in a financial services company. They're mm-hmm. usually only going to be in the healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, it, there's a rule of reasonableness, and that's acceptable. Um, you know, for example, the healthcare industry has the medical group, uh, medical group management association survey, the MGMA. Um, it's important when you submit a prevailing wage determination uh, based on that, however, that you provide as much information as possible to the Department of Labor to help them determine that wage. Um, you know, you really want to provide, for example, the methodology to show that this that the wage that you're looking for is reasonable. And, you know, highlight the sample size, the source of the data, the descriptions, procedures to collect the data. Um, you want to make sure that the survey represents the wage as an arithmetic mean, weighted average, or median wage. Um, and the size of the sample has to be appropriate. Uh, ideally, you want the survey to have at least 30 responses and at least three different employers, each having 30, uh, 30 employees uh, or 30 workers, rather. That You really have to drill deep when you're providing that kind of survey to ensure. And I would actually say, honestly, that like because like Jim said, alternative wage surveys in general kind of get the Department of Labor or Labor's hackles up a little bit because they feel you know, reasonably, that they've got this perfectly good OES survey. So why would you really have to kind of go to bat and advocate as to why your survey is good? I would actually advocate popping this type of information in regardless of where the survey, whether it's a industry survey because you're sponsoring a hospitalist or whether it's one where you're looking for an accountant across different industries. Okay. So when you just said 30 responses, so when you say it's like three employers with maybe, is it 10 workers in each of the three employers, 30, or is it each employer with 30 each responses for 30 employees? At least three employers with 30 workers as part of the sample size. Wouldn't you agree? That's uh, tough. So that's not easy. That's really difficult for an employer to find an alternate wage survey, which is why most of the times you end up either purchasing the survey and spending more money on it or contacting the Department of Labor and the OES wage database and the online wage databases, et cetera. Okay, what about after the prevailing wage is issued? What next, Jim? Well, if you get the prevailing wage termination, hopefully it's what you expected it to be and you can proceed. But that doesn't always happen. Um, so if you get a prevailing wage where you don't agree, there's something wrong with you, you don't agree with the wage level or the um, incorrect job code was assigned, you have the opportunity to submit a redetermination request within 15 uh, calendar days. Um, so you have to move quickly, and you have the opportunity to include a brief in there, include other data or information you have to argue why the Department of Labor incorrectly assigned the job code, wage level, or what it may be. Um, you also have the opportunity to appeal it um, to the Senate Director for review, and you can challenge that. Or, you know, the last option really is figure out what the problem was. You know, maybe uh, you just were a little loose in your the terms that you used. You really referred to team management and not managing individuals or something to that effect. Refine the job and then refile. Yeah, and um, while that might work, for especially in EB2, for most other nationals, of course, for Chinese and Indians in particular, with a huge backlog in the priority dates, uh, if you as an employer or the law for whatever, if your company, in-house people or whoever, 
made a mistake and now they lose two or three or four years and thousands of dollars worth of your time, your advertisements, your employees' time, that's a problem. And you will probably lose the employee in the bargain. So it's very, very important to do what they say, a stitch in time saves nine, prevention is cheaper than cure. And so, you know, we want to really, again, stress the importance of prevailing wages and prevailing wage determinations, which is the fundamental foundation or keystone on which your entire PERM labor certification is developed. And that is really your green card case and the future of your company and the future of that employee and their uh, livelihood and how long they will stay with you. Because if you do a PERM case right and well and properly and keep those employees happy, hopefully they will continue to produce profits and revenues so that you can stay in business and be profitable as employers. Uh, Obviously, as I think once Jim before pointed out, PERM is for a future position. But if the person is already in the position and earning the wage, uh, then all of the requirements need to be consistent. And actually, it's very much more helpful in terms of being able to meet the ability to pay test um, when filing the I-140 petition after the perm is approved. Um, again, all we, as we said, you know, this whole prevailing wage is a hotter, hotter, hotter issue. And as I mentioned earlier, we do, we are seeing a lot of H-1B RFEs with wage level one issues, but we've already started seeing approvals at the multi-law firm on wage level one RFEs, and we're very excited about that. And our strategies, we're also seeing approvals from the Administrative Appeals Office agreeing that these wage level, these issues that the uh, USCIS is raising may be improper, incorrect under the law. And I think that we have a very good chance of winning these cases. Um, so... Uh, so we'll do a separate teleconference for you all as employers and we'll announce that separately. But I thought I would take this opportunity to thank Korzad Mehta, Jim McLaughlin, and on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us today. I, we hope we opened your eyes on a little bit of the process and how the system works. And we certainly look forward to helping you, your company, your business, your employees with our amazing and incredible team at the Multi Law Firm so that you can obtain all those approvals and keep making those profits and focusing on what you do best, which is doing your work and bringing your clients and making the profits and leave the immigration law to the experts, to those that focus in this area. Thank you very much and have a wonderful afternoon.